0: we have to get out of denial and into acceptance recognize the change needs to happen and it doesn't need to be a one-size-fits-all because that's not how humans work it's not how our society works humans are intrinsically seeking joy
1: you are listening to the a fire podcast real estate technology cross-border investing and the opportunities of a changing world let's start a conversation now
2: yeah. So change, it's, it's a big thing. It's hard. It's where all the conversations are right now. And the change that we're seeing in real estate and in the economy and in the political, geopolitical culture seems to be bigger than we can control. It's, it, it's something where we have to ride, I think, a, a much bigger wave than any of us are used to. And certainly that's true in real estate. So, today, uh, here we are in the first half of May 2023. I want to have a little bit of a conversation with someone who really has been surfing the waves of change for some time. Uh, And that's uh, Mandy Whedon, who's the uh, founder and CEO of Feroz. Uh, She has been working with investment managers uh, throughout her career. Uh, trying to find uh, kind of solutions to all these changes and forces that are affecting us in real estate. So thank you, Mandy, for joining me on the A-Fire podcast.
0: Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, So I was talking with a colleague uh, just yesterday, and for some reason, the topic of where did you grow up came up. Um, And I've known him for, for probably 10 years. And I told him, I'm probably one of about four people in our industry that came from where we came from, and I'm talking to one of them. So, Mandy, I hear you're from my home state of Alaska. Is that true?
0: That is true. Born in Anchorage and raised in Soldotna on the Kenai Peninsula. My family still lives there. Wow. Yes, Alaskan, tried and true.
2: Growing up in Alaska at the time frame that you and I did, uh, we saw in real time in the 80s and then even more so in the 90s, uh, the effects of climate change, probably before anyone else did. And also the impact of being in an uh, ecologically sensitive area. So we were seeing, you know, just driving to the the store had an impact that you could see on the surroundings around you. Every tire tread seemed to have an impact on the environment. And then we were also seeing kind of the change in terms of the weather, certainly the the retreat of the glaciers. Uh, We were seeing kind of animals that probably weren't there before and, and plant life. And uh it really i think it's a striking experience to have that and then come into real estate at a time where sustainability climate change ESG generally is certainly having an impact on our risk and on the opportunities how important do you think it was to grow up in a in a climate sensitive area such as alaska
0: yeah i would say that just having awareness um of the surroundings, nature, climate. Because you're right, you really, um, living in Alaska, you feel it and experience it in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. So that awareness, that lens I brought to me in my real estate investment. I also talk about growing up in Alaska. Alaskans have a, many of us have a frontier mentality, right? right. Like you have a backup. You have a backup for everything, really, right? Because right. right. if your car breaks down, you could freeze to death, right? You could be you know, in trouble with a big, large animal who wants to eat you, right? Mm-hmm. You could be there for too long, all sorts of things. So you you have backups, you have contingency plans. And that, for me anyway, um, brings an opportunity to look at scenario planning. Okay, if this happens, we have these three things, right? This is good news. This is not great news. This is really bad news. And you plan around that. And that's what real estate investment is, right? You're right. managing risk. You're allocating and managing risk. You're not avoiding risk. You're just managing and getting the best result. So I feel like the frontier mentality um, is a good base for that execution um, to, to deliver results through that management mm-hmm. of the risk, right? Identifying them and then dealing with them.
2: Absolutely. And I, I love that you use the, the, the term frontier mentality uh, because it goes even deeper than that, I believe, in that... When you're on the frontier and having to have your backup and your backup of your backup, and and very much an awareness that you make too many mistakes and it's game over, you you can't just call someone in to help you out, but also that you don't always have the tools you need, you don't always have the supplies you need, and you certainly don't have the expertise you need in order to solve a problem. So you you frankly have to improvise on a regular basis and and go into a problem without having total preparation at all times, but this sense of I'll figure it out as I go. And it seems to me that nothing would prepare someone for the times we are in now where we don't really have the tools. We're developing the tools as we are engaging with the issues than, than having to do that uh, in the middle of a of a frozen lake somewhere and uh, suddenly your foot went through the ice. Uh, you know, what do you do? How do you improvise? And where do you go? Do you think that's about right? I mean, certainly that's how I've been seeing it lately.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree, right? If you don't have a roll of duct tape with you, right, something might yep. be wrong, right? <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> so, so it's the it's the it's the duct tape school that that you and I went to that that helps to go there. Well, let, let's bring it back then into uh, into real estate sustainability. ESG has certainly been a big part of what's shaking us up, especially if you're dealing with institutional capital, Mm -hmm. Uh, perhaps the states of Florida and Texas are able to say, we we don't care about ESG, but for anyone who's trying to raise capital on the global markets, it is important Um, and it does make a difference. But I, here's my question about sustainability, mm-hmm. is that we, we, we've done a really great job of improving the performance of our buildings in terms of energy. We're continuing to raise the bar on that. Everyone now is starting to talk about you know, more sustainable concrete and steel. I mean, there's a lot of things that are, that are happening that are really exciting from a technological standpoint. But I think there's probably a more fundamental question than how do we make something that accounts for 40% or more of the carbon footprint less bad? And is that office in the right place to begin with? Is, is moving our entire population 20 to 50 miles every day the most sustainable approach? How are you thinking about real estate's place in the sustainability question?
0: Given the life cycle and sort of the duration of investments, right? There's the, what do we own today? Right. And where do we want to be tomorrow? either through new investments or transitioning to the new. So the question of should we continue to operate under the assumption that the population of workforce is going to drive from a home where there's a perfectly um, good workspace that serves certain needs, driving a car in most instances, to another place to complete our work and all of the externalities right? That additional expense that comes with it to get there. The answer is we're seeing that happen as the market shifts and the workers and the workforce say, okay, I have work to do and it's in a heads down work space, or it's a collaborative team space, or it's client meeting space. The tools to complete that work include space, real estate space, in three different places. So do I now need three footprints? That's one question. Is that sustainable, appropriate, economical, right? Effective, scalable, all those questions that we ask around business. Or do I need two? Or do I need one? Or one of the questions that um, I have for you, and I'd love to get your take on is, do we take our Needs for office, the heads down work, if you can't get that at a remote place, you go get that at a closer to you place, Mm -hmm. flex office space or some sort of like drop in. Here's my like the library used to be growing up. Right. Right. Went And sat at a cube or a table or a room in the library to tap out your report on a typewriter. Like literally that's, you know, how it used to work. Do you need that space? And then you need event space. You're meeting with other humans and your team and you need collaboration and tech. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you need to go 20 miles to do it or not? And how do you get there? All those things. And so are you buying shares of that library space or shares of that collaboration space Mm
2: -hmm. instead
0: of buying the big seven year lease transaction for 15000 square feet? That's very much one box that doesn't fit all those things. Mm -hmm. Right. We finance that box really well. We don't finance the other pieces so well. We don't value them or recognize them. Well, we
2: almost leave it up to the tenant to figure it out. So here's the box, go do it. And yet the tenancy or the the, the class A tenants that we're looking for are looking for a solution. They're not looking for a, a box that we price on a per pound basis, as in square feet, as in seven to 10 year term, et cetera. They're just looking for how do I solve for these productivity issues that I have? How do I do it? And space is a major component of that along with where the space is. But at the same time, I keep hearing uh, certainly a lot of people, especially usually if they have a large office portfolio, talking about how everyone's going to return back to the office because we need more collaboration. And productivity numbers after going up at the beginning of COVID seem to be going down for people that are working from home. So a lot of people are predicting that um, we're going to come to our senses at some point. We haven't yet, but that we will come to our senses and that we will see much more work from the office than we've seen before, and therefore much more demand for uh, office space, or at least getting us back to where we were before. How do you help people kind of think through that uh, question?
0: Yeah. So it's, uh, what does the market need, right? What do those tenants need? What do the humans who walk into your building need in that space to complete the work? Right. And we uh, built very clearly, right? Cubes, rows of cubes, because that's what we delivered, right? Or they needed, right? Not flexible, not you know, not at all able to meet uh, a new way of working or a different way of working. It wasn't collaborative, right? Right. So, what do you need today? You need space that can accommodate multiple styles of working, right? You need space that, as a small to medium-sized business, right? You need to be able to have heads down space, maybe within some area, you need to be able to have conferencing space where you can have multiple people come in, um, work on a project for some duration, and you need to have space for your team to meet and have those moments of the what we feel like is really missing for productivity when you work remote is those uh, water cooler moments, right? Because right? those are so hard to achieve on a video experience. We value them more now than we probably did before. Right. As everything is better. It was better then, right? Um, <laughs> Always. So you need all that in your space. But what's built out and available is just a sea of cubes or a sea of offices. Mm-hmm. And it's hard walls and hard infrastructure. So how do you meet the need? You meet the need by uh, designing space that's flexible, literally using furniture instead of hard walls. Right. Right? Addressing that you can't do any of this well without integrated tech, mm-hmm. integrated video, integrated... Um, collaboration space. Mm -hmm. And those things are still missing from most office product. Right. You're you're not going to have the space that's flexible and inviting and encourages conversation. And you're not going to have good hybrid conference experiences. I've only had a couple of those in of the last, let's say, dozen meetings where I was in a conference room with some people on a video call. Two. Two were good. The rest were terrible.
2: Yeah. That's not very good odds there.
0: Awful for the person who was on the video and for me as a participant in the room with someone on the video. 10 out of 12 being bad is not gonna win.
2: Other than you know trying to get people to, to kind of see, here's what's happening right now, here's what the demand seems to be. How are you thinking about how a, an investment manager needs to look at surviving some of these and thriving in, with these waves of change?
0: Well, um, I think the first stage that investment managers, investors need to go through is the, uh, now that we're past denial for many people, we need to be in the acceptance stage, right? ESG, sustainable investing mandates are here to stay, right? right They might look a little different in different ways, whether you have investors from Europe, or you publicly traded organization in the US, or you have regulators that you have to answer to. But the requirement to have and I define ESG, and I add R for resilience, I define that as a framework that investors use to decide to make investments that are both strong risk-adjusted returns and produce a positive societal impact. And if you have both of those, because you've gone through the framework of evaluating your environmental social governance and resilience pillars, then you're going to be able to chart a path forward to deliver the returns with the positive societal impact. That framework, that Demand from investors to meet those two standards. It's not going away. It's here to stay. It's embedded in the system. Remember when phase one environmental site assessments were something new because we learned a really bad lesson on one transaction? Now you can't do a financing transaction or an acquisition or any recapitalization on real estate investment without a phase one assumption. It's part of the procedure and the process. It's how you determine the value. Similar is where we're going to. Move through to with an ESGR. You're going to have to have the ability to evaluate an investment with these four pillars in order to say, okay, it makes sense for our portfolio. Our investors will give us money because they believe that we're going to deliver the returns to them and a positive societal impact
2: over the long term. I, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you're still saying a positive societal impact because often that's used as as a, a criticism of ESG. Uh, certainly from folks that that. That feel that they can put the horse back into the barn at this point. Uh, and, and yet I, I think part of what drives uh, the acceptance and the, and the fact that it's already baked in in terms of ESG and, and R is that if you have anyone who's a long-term investor and by long term I mean anything over really five to, to seven years, uh, that you have to be thinking about this from a risk perspective that you don't make you don't make the expected returns or you cannot reliably deliver those returns. Uh, on a risk-adjusted basis, if you don't pay attention to this, and if you don't have the data, uh, it, I find it interesting as well that the the most the highest-rated uh, buildings that uh, are in terms of BSG, they they lease up faster, or they lease up at a higher rate than than other buildings. They are alpha, and and part of what I've I've constantly been frustrated by when people are, are objecting. Uh, To some of this, because, yeah, it's a pain. It's a pain to have to answer to some sort of regulatory authority and talk about, you know, we've got to we got to take care of this, this and this. We have to have good metrics on this, etc. But the companies that do that, they achieve exactly what it is that we're supposed to be doing as as investors, as people that are fiduciaries taking care of people's money, which is to deliver better Risk-adjusted returns to find alpha in an environment where capital is chasing after every possible opportunity to get a return. Um, I find it surprising that we get stuck in our definitions of, of societal uh, positives or, or morality. So you know, we we suddenly have this kind of uh, what, what is it the, the the woke agenda, whatever that might be, and, and and I'm very confused by what they mean when they say that. But it it. It's almost immaterial because we can all put on our evil capitalist hats and go, well, we make more money by doing it this way. Why wouldn't we do it this way? And if we don't, we're just hurting our investors. We're hurting the pensioners that that we have been you know, uh, given the task of protecting their long-term security. It seems to me that ESG&R should be high up on everyone's list, uh, not just the Europeans and the Canadians, but we should all be looking at this as uh, certainly as we're seeing the the financial uh, economic impact of of a very real climate change that's taking place um you know not everyone knows this but but uh since Mandy and I both come from Alaska Alaska is is known uh for being perhaps to the right of states like Texas politically uh so it's it's not exactly uh it's not just because uh we're we're really into nature which you know certainly we are because we lived in nature for so long But it's not just that; it's it's also a sense of practicality and how how we succeed and how we deal with with risk. I'm sorry, I got up on my soapbox there. I I apologize, but you know, does that resonate with you? It does.
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 fun, easy answer is ESGR makes more money in the long run, right? Right. Having that framework, you get better results, right? It's uh, we've seen this with uh, lots of data, right? Yes, buildings that have a green Um, Factor, sell at higher prices per square foot. And they actually trade, because look at what's traded in the market in the last six months, right? Right. You get better lease rates, right? On the multifamily side, right? You have less turnover. So that's driven by supply and demand. Demand coming from your customers, your users, is concentrated right now, where we see transactions happen, in those that are pursuing On the office side, right, it's a decarbonization. Who's got a net zero target as a corporate, as a bank, as a regulator, as a country? And if you, I use the example of Google, right? They have a 2030 net zero goal. So Google is not going to let a 25,000 square foot lease for office space in the District of Columbia ruin their chances of meeting their 2030 target. They're going to choose a building that aligns with their goals. And they've already said that, and they've already made those choices. Right. Right? Right. You see the same thing on the individual consumer when they go to lease an apartment or purchase a consumer good. Right. Right? They Google what your sustainability practices are. And I say they, right? The Gen Z population is a huge driver of a lot of this, right? Because they spend dollars where companies align with their own goals, and aspirations. And you can see that in where the dollars go. And you can see that in the apartment buildings that they choose, because that resonates with them. It meets their internal needs. And that's who's winning. So win, go where the customers are, ready and willing to spend money.
2: Earlier, you characterized it when you were talking about it to me that ESG is coming for you. I, I think that, that that's about as dramatic a, a, a way of explaining what's happening. It, it, it's You really don't have a choice, it's, it, it's coming for you. Given that it's coming for us, how should investors who have existing portfolios that may or may not have various levels of sustainability baked in, how do we need to start moving our thinking, our managing, our operations to avoid the worst and and improve the best?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a combination of things, right? It's a big change management process. but. First, you have to get your team on board. What is the goal and who's going to execute it, Mm -hmm. right? And in the real estate portfolio, we talk about taking it from the C suite, from the boardroom to the boiler room. The people who actually make choices about operating buildings, the building engineering team, the asset management team, and you communicate what your ESG goal is. You communicate the strategy and then you work with them to execute it. If you're going to install technology at a building level, you're going to be changing the physical structure and you're going to be asking the humans who are in that building to change their behavior. You have to go get them on board. I talk about getting everybody in the same boat with an oar and rowing in the same direction, right? Educate them about what the goal is and how it's connected, right? and then start the process. You have to get the humans to engage with a solution.
2: Which seems to me to be the hardest thing you've got to do, which is to get people to change their, their behaviors. And not everyone lived in a, in a log cabin in the middle of Alaska. So what are the, the kind of challenges and how do people get around them in terms of Shifting that culture and that understanding of well, you know, starting today, we're going to be doing things in a different way. I, I can't just mandate people do that; they they'll re, they'll revolt, right? If if I, if I push them. So how do you help organizations kind of manage that change process? That change process that's so difficult and painful, and and you even described it, you know, in terms of acceptance and negotiation. I mean, it's like the the phases of grief. So how do you do that? How do you help people kind of change the way they think?
0: So uh, I'll share two. Two thoughts on that, two stories. So the first is, what are you investing in? Where are you putting your money, right? So from the acquisitions, the portfolio management, right? Right. That team needs to get on board or be brought on board, right? If they don't understand about ESG, the investment framework, what the goals are, help them understand, right? Get them educated so they can go make the transactions that make sense to them. And right now that's sort of happening. The forward thinking investment managers are getting there. You got to move it from the Office of Sustainability to the organization's, you know, processes. So that's happening. And then the second point, I share this story on a regular basis. You got to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. Mm -hmm. And one of the projects that I was fortunate to launch was a waste diversion program, and that was food waste composting. So in an office portfolio and multifamily portfolio. So we already had recycling. We already had trash. And we were putting a third bin of food waste composting in at um, apartment buildings and office buildings. And we educated everybody about what it was, right? We had them installed. We had some learning sessions and we had good traction. And then we could see where the adoption was falling. And it's, you can see like visually see, right? So you can, you can check yourself on a regular basis as well as, you know, you check the cameras in your loading dock to see what Waste management picked up and what got moved where, right? Did they pick up the recycling bin and throw it in the garbage truck or not? But when we noticed that the adoption was slowing or changing, I hosted a waste audit, which is a trash sorting party. So you take the lobby, you throw some tarps down. This is back to my Alaska days, right? Get some blue tarps, duct tape, protect the floor, right? Get the gloves, you pull out the trash bins, and you invite the property team, the executives of in that area and all the residents and the um, building occupants to come see how we're doing. And during those events, we answered so many questions about why we're doing this and what this means. And look, it turns into fertilizer. And that is actually what's on top of the roof where we grow greens that we give you uh, in a box once a week. Right. Mm -hmm. And which goes in which bin, right. Answer those questions. And we learned where they were confused and where things weren't working And through that process of doing that with them side by side, we built the investment in the success of the program going forward. Mm -hmm. And so now it's theirs. Yeah. right. And they're going to go do it. And they're the ones who are saying, "Hmm, I have this question. I'm going to Google it um, about which goes in which bin or, hey, I'm going to tell my neighbor, I'm not going to be here when the pickup for compost is. Can you put it out on my day? Like, it was awesome. Yeah. It was because you connected those dots between here's what the goal is and here's what your role is. And you got you to roll up your sleeves and work right along with them.
2: That's a far cry, I think, from the, the the copied sheet of do's and don'ts that people put over the various bins. It's more of an experience and it's more of getting your hands dirty, just the physical experience of going through it and kind of seeing it and feeling it a different way. And And frankly, seeing not just other tenants being told what to do, but but the management getting involved as well and being part of that process and part of that learning process, I think that's that's interesting. We talk about education sometimes as if it's something you just insert into someone's brain somehow and then magically they know what to do and then they're going to change their behaviors. Now, it's, it's certainly, you know, these are forces <laughs> that we've got to deal with. We've got to change our own behavior to meet them. But there's other, obviously, a, a lot of other forces that are are messing with us, if you will, in terms of the value of our real estate, what works, what doesn't, what we have to change and where, uh, frankly, are we going to have to spend some money to upgrade uh, what we have in order to attract those prime tenants. There's that demographic shift. Uh, I talked uh, recently with Hans Nordby over at Linestone Investments, and he, he's, you know, the demographic guru, guru these days. Uh, and, and certainly we're seeing a, a major shift as millennials are getting older. Uh, but what are you seeing in terms of how demographics are are pushing around your clients and, and investment management generally?
0: It's the middle being squeezed right now is what it feels like, because on the on the incoming side. Right. We produce workers and we define workers in the U.S. as an 18 year old. So it takes 18 years to produce a worker. And um, compared to 10 years ago, We're only we're producing 300,000 fewer workers a year. So there's less workers coming in to the workforce. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of the spectrum, right, we have the baby boomers who by the end of this decade, by 2030, all of them will be 65 years or older. So what's left, what's in the middle is your client base. So they're producing your real estate. They're in you know, investing and running your real estate and they're using and engaging with your real estate. There's fewer of them. So you're gonna to have to deal with fewer people. And Honda, right? The Honda motorcycle story is the famous example that we use for case studies. When you're 20, you're much more likely to buy a Honda motorcycle than when you're 35 and married with two kids under five, or when you're 65 and entering retirement. So what's the size of the 20-year-old cohort, whatever it is, 18 to 22? And how does that change over time, right? Real estate pays a lot of attention to that. Household formation, workforce, all of those things. So it's all changing. And this is US, right? Globally, it's even more fascinating what's happening in India and China with the workforce, as well as in European countries. But in the US, we're dealing with that um, shrinking workforce. And so you have to Reframe that as an opportunity and find how your organization's mission aligns with your employee's mission so that you keep that talent. You get that talent and you keep that talent. And when you align like that and your talent is aligned with you and you keep them, you have a competitive edge. You win more often. So that, that's the reframing that we have to plan for and think through when we look at how demographics are impacting real estate as a category both as an investment and as a product. This
2: uh, the big thing that that is in the the media all the time and people are constantly asking me about is AI and how that's changing not just, you know, the culture and and you know, there's some very serious implications of of ChatGPT and everything else that's coming out right now. Uh, but also in terms of our processes and our approach to data and where it goes. So how do you think how, how do you advise your clients to be thinking about these major forces that are mostly at this point, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear about where that's going. But but how do we surf that?
0: Well, I'll tell you my story. So I was reading about Jet GPT when it first came into my awareness, right? Which is what, beginning of this year? So months, right? We're still measuring it in months. And I was yeah. like, oh, that, I don't know, that that doesn't seem like anything I would use or really, like, how could this be applied? I'm not certain. And I was like, whatever, try it. It's a no cost exercise, right? So I tried it and I um, put some prompts in like, provide a uh, compare and contrast between A and B. And the response was, can't do that, right? Don't have access to the network. Okay, provide this um, evaluation of this organization's report and their outcomes, can't do it. I was like, okay, so what do I need from this, right? So then um, on someone's advice, I said, okay, explain this topic and I picked a topic right um, to a fourth grade elementary school audience okay and that uh, what I you know the output from chat GPT was very useful right it wasn't in my tone it wasn't in my way of speaking but the here are the concepts that are going to be important to convey to a fourth grade elementary class and I could use that and I'm like well if the fourth graders get it, right? We're uh, we're in a good place. So figuring out how to use it is number one challenge that me, a Gen Xer and a tech ad- adopter, early adopter had to deal with. But I think where I see it really valuable nowadays is if I am problem solving uh, within specific boundaries, uh, and I think about this when I think about code, right? Zoning regulations and code. I was in a meeting earlier this week, a two and a half hour long uh, purchase and sale agreement negotiation, right, with buyer and seller. And there were questions about zoning regulations and where jurisdiction where this property was located. And I was like, oh, ChatGPT could give me that in minutes, in moments. That's where it's useful, right? When you're answering, when my job is a code reviewer or uh, an architect or someone who's building something and needs access to known data, and you need tidying and sourcing, right? But that's where it's going to be useful. Um, And we're already seeing it, right? Organizations are already saying, right? They're shortening the the learning curve for new employees when they have a chat GPT or some sort of AI tool with uh, them alongside to ask questions about where do I find the X, Y, and Z policy, right? It'll just send it instead of you know going through the labyrinth of people who know where that policy is located but
2: less uh, less certainly the i don't i don't know if it's higher or just more complicated communication that needs to take place that chat gpt at least in this iteration is not able to uh, deliver at this point maybe that's something still to come
0: give it 2 years i mean yeah. it doesn't even it might not even be 2 years right it might be you know 6 months right we'll talk mm-hmm. about it again and it'll be it'll have you know moved to the next level i think where real estate where it's really going to be interesting and i see it today um, happening is when you're looking at technology in in a building right and we talk about like demand response for energy right so if you can change how your building pulls energy from the grid or have a reservoir a battery of energy so you can um, give it back or take it as you need when prices and demand changes you can plan for that through collecting all the data about every time you're building pools and other buildings pull that data and you can use artificial intelligence the other you know word we use is machine learning you can use the thousands and thousands and thousands probably even more of data points to learn and anticipate of when that's coming and what's going to happen so you can be proactive about that demand response right you need all of those data points for the machine to learn Right, Because the machine doesn't learn just because you tell it, I want to use energy more efficiently. You want to show it how you use energy more efficiently. And you need all those data points to do it. But that's happening today in real time, too. And that will only get better. And yes, this is scary, right? Like 2001 and how and like, like there is a lot happening in the world today that... uh Around AI intelligence and robots, and what are we going to be in a year? I, I, part of me, most of me, is super excited, and a little part of me is like, oh, I'm back in Alaska. What am I going to do with plans?" Right? Is that another big giant predator that I have right. to deal with right. now? Right,
2: and you just don't know. Uh, it's it's a kind of wariness uh, around. All right, well, let's pay attention to this. We don't know what it's going to do exactly, but I, I'm enthused by your enthusiasm around it. I think there's there's something. Something that we need to pay more attention to. I think the whole kind of digital aspect of place is something that we're probably going to continue to be wrestling with as as we're looking at uh, real estate. Uh, you know, there, there's a tendency for people to make the mistake of thinking that real estate is a building, when actually it's it's aggregation of people and, and densification of people that we are through contracts, through placemaking, through making a building work a little bit better so that people wanna come together. That's how we get paid. And as soon as we get too stuck on the building, we get stuck, we literally get stuck. And the building is not necessarily what the value is. The value is how many people wanna be there, how much are they willing to pay to be there, whether they're buying things or they're doing work or they're living there, whatever it is that they might be doing in that space. And it seems to me that the digital aspect as we think about digital twins, as we think about you know what happens in the metaverse, perhaps in terms of around location, how you know folks are trying to turn our building facades into advertising boards where they can put whatever they want our facades funds. in order to be on people's virtual reality. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot there, and there's there's legal questions certainly. There's danger there. There's all sorts of ways that these things can be taken advantage of, but there's also opportunity for us to look again at real estate as something more than a building. A building is the tool that we use to help augment that relationship we have with tenants and investors. And it's this ecosystem where we're tying investors, whether it's you know pensioners that are, that are you know hoping to retire on whatever the return is, or it's banks that are trying to make sure that they don't go out of business uh, with the debt that they're providing. And it's the tenants, the tenants wanting to do what they, what they need to do in that environment, and us in the middle of it, trying to figure out, all right, well, how do we monetize this? How do we make this work? How do we pay for all these upgrades that we're going to have to do over the next, uh, goodness, five years uh, in order to address these big waves? Uh, so it, it is interesting to me that that these forces are there. What other forces do you think are other waves, since we're, we've been using that metaphor, which is weird for Alaskans, all we wanted to do was go to Hawaii where there were waves that we could swim on. Right. Uh, but it, it, what what do you th- what else are you looking for
0: let's talk about metaverse and technology i mean do you remember when the iphone came out and this was like a moment of aha for so many people right that was 2007 is when the first iphone came out so if you think about it an 18 year old today would have been what, two years old in 2007? That means for their fully conscious life, there's always been an iPhone. Well, does not have iPhones. What is it like? um, And I use my um, 12-year-olds and 10-year-olds for reference around this. What is it like for them to walk into their work or an office building and it's fully disconnected from a digital experience? There's no connection to their phone, which they are like, if they could be jacked in, mm-hmm. they'd have an implant. How is that building relevant in their world if it's fully disconnected from their experience? So we have to fix that, right? And yes, that it's a fragmented tech market, too many choices, not sure who's going to make it, what do you actually need in your building, understanding what your building's going to be, where you want to make an investment that's going to last or cost and it needs to last. All of that has to be resolved. But the need to make your building relevant for a tech user who happens to just be a 20-year-old human who enters your building, that exists. So you have to solve that. And then the um, when I talk about the metaverse, sometimes that elicits groans. Mm-hmm. And it's true, right? Because what is that? So I like to define it because that helps me when I think about it. But it's a, the evolution of the internet moving from looking at things, like browsing, to actually interacting with things and then participating in real time in a shared virtual environment, right? So it's that spectrum. You can be anywhere on it. I use BMW, my favorite uh, example for real estate tech, because I get to say like digital twin and AI and metaverse all in the same segment, but BMW is using the metaverse today and they're using it in a from a digital twin perspective. So I learned, through this research, that most of BMW's products are custom. You, you buy a BMW because you can choose the color of the leather and choose the color of the exterior and all that. So most of their production is customized, which means they don't produce this you know the same car off the same production line every day for hours. So that changing is expensive in a factory perspective. So they have this digital twin where they can have a human who is reviewing and engaging how the factory in real life in Stuttgart or somewhere is actually operating, and they can plan for what's coming, um, and they make changes from their virtual space on the production line to meet the needs of what's being produced right now. Something's not working, so they can change it. And what's coming for the next wave of production um, in the next hour or so. and that allows that engineer that expertise to be working on different factories at the same time right and to take best practices learned and in the moment in real time make those changes right and it their efficiency is improved by 30% for these production lines which are highly customized because they have that ability to see what's happening in real time and make changes by an expert who's not in the middle turning a wrench they're at a desk right? Moving things in a virtual metaverse environment. And I think that's way cool. <laughs> and I think that's coming, Yeah, right? Yeah. To your local office building. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I, I agree. And, you know, I think it's one of the subjects that I'd like to, to have more around some of AFIRE. Uh, the digital twin discussion has been, you know, most owners of, of buildings are engaged with digital twins. They just don't know it. Uh, That their engineers are perhaps playing with it, especially when it comes to new construction, but that more and more is converting over there. But I I don't think that, uh, I don't think a lot of investors are uh, aware of what can happen with that if we engage with it better. Um, and for us to be able to do a better job of operating, operating's the game right now to a certain extent. The the, the better operators are going to win, not just because you know they they, they make uh, tenants happy, but because they're they're saving on energy costs and 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 uh, you know whatever other capital expenditures need to be put into that building, they're going to be as efficient as possible with that. Uh, so I. I I think, you know, the more we can use these tools, and I don't think we've talked enough about it in recent times. I think there was a bit of a flurry in the engineering world five years ago, but it, now it's, I think, time for us to look at it, not just from an engineering and architectural perspective, but to see it as how we operate these these enterprises, these individual companies that we call buildings, um, and how we work through that.
0: I will uh, add to your point. I think that, yes, we see digital twins um, in the design of new buildings actually the design process and we see them in the operation of new buildings that have the infrastructure that can be twinned right right but we have right. such a huge stock of existing buildings that don't even have i mean maybe they have a thermostat one of the little ones that you move <laughs> with your hands right yeah. Um, yeah. but they don't have a building automation system so you you're starting from no digital presence and you have to, in order to decarbonize, electrify, if provide any sort of energy efficiency, you have to get that infrastructure built. And I do see there's opportunities to use um, technology. Like you have to install the, the infrastructure, but then you can use the digital twins and use that to then replicate, to scale, to manage, to operate, and to bring those buildings into onto the path to decarbonize right because that's the only way we're going to meet um, any of our net zero goals is to get those that building stock in the boat right rowing in the same direction
2: everything you're describing sounds so imperative but also so hard that we're having to change not just we not having to just write a check it's not like we can make this go away just by. Paying more for something, and I think there are some folks that would love to do that <laughs> and then leave me alone here's the check fix it um, but it seems to be asking something more and something even more difficult um, where everything from leadership on down to the guy that's that 's cleaning the bathrooms has to be thinking about what they're doing and change what they're doing how how can we do a better job of making that change as we look at these big waves that are coming at us?
0: Yeah, I'll go back to the beginning. Um, we have to get out of denial and into acceptance. Okay. Recognize the change needs to happen, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it doesn't need to be a one-size-fits-all, mm-hmm. right? Because that's not how humans work, It's not how our society works, right. right? So there can be options and there can be paths. And I think when you, you recognize that humans are intrinsically seeking joy or avoiding pain Mm -hmm. you get to use both right Mm -hmm. show that this bear is going to chase you and eat you if you don't get going and um move to where you need to move and that right by uh we can use another alaska metaphor right by planning and engaging you can have a great hike to the glacier and back right right and everybody gets back safely right and you might have a bear sighting along the way, just far enough away that it's not scary. There you go, right or dangerous, right? But you need to have both the if we don't do this, here's what pain will experience, and if we do this, here's the positive and the joy that we will experience.
2: You're almost describing the, the, that we have to accept that we are going to hurt. It, it's it's you know I think sometimes when we avoid making change, it's we we have some sort of assumption that it's possible. To avoid the difficulty and and the pain, uh, as opposed to saying it is going to hurt, no matter what happens. So now let's embrace it and and the, let's do the appropriate planning and and let's find the the good part on the other side, which is that beautiful photograph of a bear playing around with a salmon or something like that. Um, we've probably flogged that metaphor to death, but you know that th- th- that's kind of the idea, right? That that. It, it, the acceptance isn't just that the world has changed. There's also this acceptance of, I've got to go through this. I've I've got to engage directly with this. And it is not going to return to what I now think is the glory days of before when these changes weren't coming at me. Um, and it seems that, that we all have to have those moments where we kind of accept for ourselves personally, not just someone else in the organization, someone who's in charge of ESG has to accept change and deal with it. But all of us have to deal
0: with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we redefine success, right? Success now means that we X plus Y, right? It was just X. You just need to achieve the highest rental rate. Okay, great. Now, achieve the highest rental rate and you need to meet that tenant's decarbonization goals in order to get that lease signed, right? Mm-hmm. So it when that's put in front of people to sign industrial leases or retail leases or office leases we figure it out right we're like yes okay we can invest in this we will install this all of that is possible when we are the art of the possible right when we're going to get a lease signed but um if you just say no i can't do it you're not going to win that lease (sighs) and then you're going to experience pain real pain because they're going to go somewhere That's else.
2: right. That, then you're talking real pain, not just discomfort, but real pain. Well, that... Yeah.
0: So get ready for that conversation now. Yeah, that's what I say. I think
2: that's good Good advice. And uh, I, I suspect that there's going to be a lot more conversations like this, especially as we look out over the year ahead of us. Uh, maybe it's two or three years. We'll see how long... Uh, these challenges before we start getting a grip on how we can work with them. And and I I do think that there's something very bright on the other side as we solve some of these major problems. We may get that beautiful photograph of a bear uh, without getting hurt. Uh, So thank you uh, for joining me and and talking through this a little bit with me. Um, We've been talking with uh, Mandy uh, Whedon at at Feroz uh, about change, about ESG and resilience about tech about the metaverse what haven't we talked about Uh, but I I certainly recommend that that people uh, seek out for us and and some of the insights about how to apply some of this kind of change management into our world of investment management so thank you Mandy for joining me on the AFIRE
1: podcast
0: I greatly enjoyed it Uh, it was a lot of fun thanks for having me
1: if you have been listening to the a A-Fire podcast, remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell an asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.